0: and so as we kick it off this morning we've just uh, and over the last couple of weeks i've mentioned this we are going into this series with an open heart and asking the holy spirit to open our eyes open our lives and speak to us can we just do that put your hand on your heart say dear lord jesus holy spirit speak to my heart your servant is listening In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the question is this that I want to start off with How do we respond to a broken world? Our brokenness runs deep. The chaos and confusion we experience in our culture today didn't happen overnight, but how many know it has happened over time? How many know sometimes we as believers, come on, we're awakened. And we act like we're surprised, right? But these things have been going on for decades, generations, some of the things we see manifesting in culture today. Our world and nation has drifted away from truth and we're no longer anchored in absolutes. But as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, we are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And so the purpose of this entire series, the purpose of it even being a church-wide campaign is to equip us and give us tools on how to understand and pray for and reach the heart of the next generation. You see, over the coming weeks, you're going to be introduced to what is known as the global youth culture. The global youth culture is 17 to 35 years of age, and they can be found in every major city on the planet. They have grown up in a world dominated with video games, porn, social media. So how do we bridge the ever-widening cultural divide between secular youth culture and the church? You see, answering this question has nothing to do with being a cool church with an LED screen, more smoke and lights. How many know that's not going to reach the heart of a generation? I do think it's cool, but it's not going to reach the heart of a generation. Answering this question is critical to the future of the church and catching a burden and culting, cultivating compassion as a congregation for a generation that is disconnected from faith. And by the way, it's just not those people out there, listen, it's right in our own families, our children, our relatives, our friends, and I'm not here to label the younger generation but to ask God again to open my eyes, to open our heart and our minds on how we can respond to a broken world. I wanna talk about today three philosophies that have hijacked a generation. And when I say that word generation, I'm not just talking about the younger generation. It had to start somewhere along the way. It just didn't show up overnight again. It started over time. And so when you think of the generations, there's the silent generation that was born, 1928 to 1945, the baby boomers, 1946, 1964, Generation X, where I belong, 1965 to 1980, millennials, 1981 to 1995, Gen Z, 1996 to 2010, and generation, here's a new one for me, Generation Alpha, Born 2011 to 2025. How many know 2025? They ain't even here yet. So they haven't all arrived. (laughs) You see, in this room, and because we're a multi-generational church, all the generations are represented. We've even had folks in their 90s that still attend. But today, we're seeing the radical outcomes of the philosophies that I'm going to reveal this morning as they are more and more embraced and lived out by those that are coming behind us. And the first philosophy that has hijacked a generation is secularism. Secularism is defined as a system of doctrine and practices that disregards or rejects any form of religious faith and worship. Its primary objective is the total elimination of all religious elements from society, It might be better understood or characterized this way. It is the marginalization and privatization of spirituality. Let me just define these two things for you. Marginalization is the treatment of a person, a group, or concept as insignificant or peripheral. We've heard this word a lot. And I wanted to just give you an example so you know what I'm talking about. This week, I actually got a text from one of our missionaries. We support over 40 missionaries here monthly at Real Life Church. And one of our missionaries uh, is the West Coast Regional Vice President of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. His name is Jared McCachron. And Jared texted me with a link and he said, The Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so me being curious about what it was all about, I clicked on the link and I discovered that there was a high school in the Bay Area, San Jose to be specifically, that they were trying to establish a fellow, or there actually was a Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club meeting on campus with all the other clubs. Now, FCA clubs welcome all students and believe that everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. In fact, the students and the leaders that were a part of that were known for doing great things on campus, and the student athletes that were a part of the club were known as great students that were a part of this club. But none of that mattered when district officials determined that the club couldn't choose leaders who shared their faith. You see that? They couldn't choose leaders that aligned with the club's beliefs. Now, let me just tell you, that would be like me going up and signing up for the Filipino club and wanting to lead it. Did you notice I'm not Filipino? Okay, I'm not Filipino, I'm Italian, Maltese, all right. Across the district, numerous student groups require both leaders and members to support the purpose of their groups. Groups like the National Honor Society can exclude students who don't have a high enough GPA. Sports clubs can exclude students uh, that are gender specific if they're not that gender. So FCA's request was even more modest. They said, all students are welcome. The club just asked for those who are leading it to affirm the club's religious beliefs. Even so, district officials targeted FCA and labeled the club discriminatory, even while allowing numerous other student groups to choose leaders who align with their mission. Now, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, is incre- it is actually bringing revival to middle school, elementary, and high school campuses in Sacramento. You might be familiar with the name Otis Amy. Anybody familiar? with Otis Amy, former 49er, lives in Natomas, used to go to this church, is now a pastor at Bayside in Elk Grove. He he really spearheaded this revival that is happening on campuses in Sacramento. So just to kind of bring it home, it's just not there. It's, It's right here. So after discussions with the district failed, FCA and its student leaders asked a federal court to order the district to allow it equal access to meet on campus, okay? Long story short... On August 29, 2022, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed, ruling that FCA students must be treated fairly and equally, and the district could not discriminate against their religious leadership standards under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and Equal Access Act. Now, I say that because First Service was actually more excited than you guys. But listen, even though we celebrate That victory, what even more impressed me about this article was how the Fellowship of Christian Athletes responded to the adversity. And again, we're asking the question, how do we respond to our broken world? Even though they were taunted and shamed, accused of being intolerant, they cheerfully served the people who maligned them. They looked for ways to serve the groups that were protesting fellowship of Christian athletes. They brought water and donuts to the LGBT group. They prayed for their university leaders and found creative ways to support and strengthen the institutions that were bent on driving them out. In other words, they understood that marginalization was not martyrdom but an opportunity to allow Jesus to shine brighter. You see, a distinctive display of love, listen, for those who are against us, is one of the most powerful marks of a Christian. In the past four years now, FCA has grown at a double-digit rate, increasing their presence on more than 100 new campuses, and they're ministering to over 40,000 students. Come on, we can give God praise. What I'm trying to tell you, what I'm trying to tell you, listen, they did not respond in hostility. They responded in humility. The second is the privatization. It's char- secularism is characterized by privatization. It's the limitation of the Christian gospel to the private spiritual concerns of the individual. You see, these definitions are important to understand and see because when they're understood, you you can begin to see the enemy's schemes to extract the sacred from the secular. You see, in the 20th century, we experienced a significant shift towards a privatized understanding of religion. Whereas people once considered, listen, uh, religion as a relevant part of many of the aspects of our lives and society, the prevailing notion today often constricts it to spiritual beliefs and psychological health. In other words, it's no better than a self-help program. As long as it's private, we're good. As long as you don't bring your faith into the public square, we're good. The word constrict is the word that flew off the page when I was reading and studying. This word constrict means to narrow, to narrow something by encircling pressure. Anybody MMA fans in here? Just me on Saturday nights, all right? You know, you ever see somebody have to tap because they got the choke hold them so tight and they're struggling and they're fighting and finally they tap. Why? Because that, t- that, that hold is so tight it's closing. The air passage in their esophagus and they can't breathe. Can I tell you this? There is a spiritual pressure to squeeze religion out of public life so it is seen only as useful in our private life. Acts 16, 16 to 19. Now it happened. Luke, Luke is telling this story. He's the author of the book of Acts. Now it happened as we went prayer, I want you to underline that. That a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Verse 18. And this she did for many days. But Paul... Greatly annoyed. Come on, how many ever been greatly annoyed by a young person in your life? Come on. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And that very hour, he, talking about the demon, came out. And when it came out, her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. In other words, come on. When Paul cast out the demon, it shut down their business. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Now, the phrase spirit of divination, that word divination in the Greek is the word python. You see, the spirit of divination... It's like a python that grabs hold of you and attempts to isolate and squeeze you out of the strategic place of prayer so that you'll attempt to handle the python in your own power and might, that you'll begin to confront, listen, the python, something spiritual through your flesh and through your might and through your persuasiveness. How I many know we're going to need a little more than that? so i found this video uh, on social media this week and so if you don't like the discovery kingdom or snakes i'm going to ask you to shut your eyes for about 47 seconds and i'll tell you when you can open them but listen look at this Come on, you can go ahead and clap for the dog. Come on, somebody. <laughs> It had a good ending. Those are some brave kids, amen? You're not going to see me in that video. But how many of you know we need people in our lives who will fight for us and release us from the pressure of a python that is trying to marginalize? Squeeze my faith and isolate me into a private space. And listen, there are some of you this morning, the enemy has you isolated, you're alone, and I'm telling you this morning, you need to jump into community, because when you jump into community, your freedom is coming. This marginalized and inward-looking faith has weakened the perceived responsibility and social relevance of local churches. We, we, we see organizations like YMCA started as a Christian organization. Harvard started out as a Christian college. Places like Salvation Army, you read the stories, and over and over and over again, what you'll see, what history says, is that people of faith rose up to meet public need. This is a constant thread throughout our history. You see our culture tends to view the secular as the realm of politics, economics and science and the sacred as the realm of family life and religion. We've gotten comfortable with the divide. Secular Life has taken claim to things like law and order, but the sacred is only occupied itself with salvation and spiritual health. The secular life focuses on cities and states. The sacred life has only focused on sanctuaries in heaven. Secular life is about exercising power, but sacred life is supposed to only exercise forgiveness. Secular life concerns itself with physical bodies and property, but sacred life has concerned itself only with people's souls. Secular life is about justice and sacred life has said, oh, you must all only be about love. And as long as you stay on your side of the fence, we can be good neighbors. But as soon as you come on this side of the fence, we have problems. This is a spirit of intimidation. Did you notice I said the spirit of intimidation? Look what Paul says in verse 18. And this she did for many days. Talking about the girl. But greatly annoyed, he turned and said, not to the girl. He didn't talk to the girl. It said he said to the spirit. He talked to the spirit who was behind the girl. Listen, and we're so occupied, come on, fighting with people instead of fighting the spirit realm. You see, this secular, sacred divide implies that as long as Christians just go to church and not be the church, we're good. As long as Christians stay out of public spaces, we're good. As long as Christians keep their beliefs to themselves, we'll be good. As long as you stay on the sidelines and don't get involved in the outcome of the game, we'll be okay. How many bench warmers I got in here? I remember my football coach benched me on the championship game. I'm still hurting over that moment. It's no fun to sit on the bench, but we've settled as believers to be on the bench, You see, it is important that we learn how to respond. Here's the deal, all these things that I've mentioned should provoke us, but what is our response supposed to be? You see, we can become enemies with people, or if we are wise as snakes and innocent as doves. We can be influencers for the kingdom. You see, we can burn bridges or we can build bridges. We can be provoked to action or we can be provoked to anger and accusation. And how many know when that happens? The spirit of anger is spirit. How many know we all get locked up? So what impact is this secularism having on the generations that are coming behind us? Well, let me tell you, nearly half, 46% of teens, won't discuss faith issues with others who do not share their beliefs. 44% of Christian teens disagree that they even have a responsibility to share their faith with others. Fewer than one in 14 teens worldwide are committed to living out strong Christian beliefs and behaviors but there's hope. I love this. If you look at the statistics of Gen Z, I believe Gen Z, God is raising up Gen Z to be some of the greatest evangelists of all time. A, a, a survey was sent out. To what extent do you agree or disagree with this following statement? I am comfortable sharing my faith with other people. Gen Z's 74%. Come on. So there's hope. This is what I'm telling you. There's hope for a generation. And so many times, listen, I think, I feel like we give up and we just say, well, it is what it is. It'll be what it'll be. But can I tell you, God has called us to make a difference with our kingdom influence. And I'm so thankful that even in this church, people are being stirred to run for public office, city council, school board. And listen, I'll just tell you, it doesn't come without criticism. It doesn't come without criticism. People will do research, backgrounds on the people that are running, and they'll say, they go to that church. They go to that church. Tell your church they got to do this, 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 and that, and then we'll get behind you. Come on, the spirit of Python. Come on, narrowing. Come on, choking religion out of the public space. Guys ready for the second thing that hijacked the generation? It's relativism. Are you guys still with me? I know it's a little hot, but you can get something out and fan your neighbor or something. Tell him, wake up. I'm hot too. Feel like I'm on my Peloton up here. All right. Relativism is the belief that there's no absolute truth. I've covered this before in the Get God Right series. There's no right and wrong. There's no moral or immoral. The idea that there is no transcendent truth and therefore no universal morality. It is the death of truth and the rise of preference. But how many know there's nothing new under the sun? This has been happening, listen, for centuries. We see this in the book of Judges, where there was, where there was no king. Verse 17, verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When you remove the absolutes, right, now you, got, now you have to have normative truth and subjective truth. You'll hear things said like this, Jesus, the church, and the Bible are outdated and no longer relevant. I was a, uh, after I went to two years of discipleship school, I went to Santa Rosa uh, Junior College, and I'm just telling you, it was a hostile environment. Not all my classes, some of my classes I even had teachers who were believers who actually were challenging me to stand up for my faith, and I'm thankful for them, but there were some other classes, listen, that they were just straight up in my face, just denying the Bible, denying everything, and didn't even want to have a conversation, Relativists will say, do what you think. Do what you feel is right. You're the ultimate standard for right and wrong. If it feels good, do it. Here's one. The right people will always and forever accept you just as you are. Can I just say this? Because I talked about the acceptance of a loving father and how God, listen, God wants to raise up spiritual moms and dads and brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, that will welcome people just as they are. Here's the thing that you have to see that's wrong with this. Listen, the right people will always and forever accept you just as you are. Listen, there's just a little bit of poison in that. Listen, Jesus and his bride says, come as you are. And when you encounter Jesus, come on, you never leave the same. Listen, the truth is, listen, you come as you are. But when you encounter the living God, you'll not leave like you came. This is the truth. And listen, you're not conforming to some dead religion. You've come alive and you're not becoming like some church. You're becoming like Jesus. You're becoming more and more like him. Please don't become like me. And so relativism displaces absolutes with normative truth. Normative truth is what we as a group agree is true. It's not hard these days to find someone who will agree with you and your opinion on how you feel. Just me, all right. But just because you found a group that agrees with you doesn't mean it agrees with God's truth. And a lot of times we surround ourselves with a group of people that are gathering around the lowest common denominator instead of the highest good for our lives. This is what I like to say. Normative truth will lead me to nominal living. Another cousin of uh, relativism is subjective truth. This is how the individual sees or experiences the world. This is where we get my truth. Everybody say my my truth. Which is rooted in the opinions and beliefs of the subjects who hold them and vary from person to person. The problem is my truth can blind me from absolute truth. I've said this example before in the Get God Right series, is that I, um, the the staff, we're a bunch of foodies. We we love to eat. Every week, we go out, we pick a restaurant. The problem is the staff knows what restaurants I don't like. And so they'll always be like, well, let's go. And I said, where are we going? And they'll just kind of look at me and smile. And they're like, can we, I'm not going to say the place. Can we go here? And I'm like, nah, that place is terrible. And they're like, what do you mean? It's great. The soup and salad is $7.99. All you can eat. What do you mean? And based on one experience, right? Maybe the chef didn't show up that day. Maybe the waiter had a hangover or whatever the case may be. Listen, I, I had a bad experience. And so... Like, I'm a huge customer service guy, and so I'm like, I'm never going to that restaurant again. It's terrible. (laughs) And because of my experience, it has blinded me to the reality and the truth that, man, actually, that restaurant is really, really good. (laughs) It's a really, really good. It's actually, man, it's got great Yelp reviews. But because of my experience, I'm not going there. You see, my truth can blind me from the real truth. And then the last philosophy that is hijacking the generation is tolerance. Tolerance has been redefined. Even since I've been a youth pastor in the 90s, it started getting a new definition. Tolerance, according to the Webster, and you can look at this as late as 1992, used to be defined this way, to recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, without sharing or having to agree with them, and to bear to put up with someone. How many of you had to put up with somebody or something that is not specially liked? That's how we've all experienced tolerance, right? How many of you had to put up with something or someone you didn't like? We all have. But new tolerance says this. Believing that there's no truth and embracing everyone's ideas, belief, and view as equally true even when it's wrong. Did you hear what I said? Believing there's no truth and embracing everyone's ideas, belief, and view as equally true even if they're wrong. How many know that's insanity? The new definition of tolerance claims that there is no truth, and that in itself is self-refuting Meaning contradictory because it itself is a truth claim and affirms what it's trying to deny. For example, what if a judge decided to tolerate perjury in his courtroom? How much disrespect should a teacher tolerate in the classroom? Or how about this? What if a surgeon began to tolerate septic conditions in the operating room? How many of you laying on that table? In the book, and I quote the book here, I just love what it says. It says this. It says, today, tolerance guards ideas and attacks people. This has created a climate of conformity. People no longer have the freedom to think critically about issues and come to their own conclusions for fear of being rejected or bullied. Tolerance suddenly isn't so tolerant. And Paul, he warns us in Colossians 2, verse eight. Are you guys with me? Be sure, be careful, watch, see that no one leads you away, takes you captive, captivates you with false, deceptive, and empty, worthless teaching that is only human, according to human traditions. Listen to this. Which comes from where? Which comes from where? Elemental spiritual forces, demons, or elementary teachings of this world and not from Christ. This is what I want us to walk away with today as we start this 8-week series. It's this. The real problem is a spiritual problem and the real battle is a spiritual battle. <clears throat> Ephesians 6:12 says, "For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, contending only with physical opponents. But against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly supernatural places. So how do we know we have to learn how to respond? Come on. Not first by the flesh. I'm not saying we don't need to follow up, but we need to respond. Come on. In the humility and in the spirit. So let me give you four great consequences of these philosophies real quick as the worship team gets ready. As we scan the landscape, again, here it is. As a congregation, as we leave this place, listen, what do we hear, what do we see, and what do we do? What do we hear, what do we see, what do we do? I see brokenness, trauma, is found everywhere in the next generation. Riddled by divorce, abuse, near-death experience, watching someone die or being abused, job loss that led to homelessness, or not having enough food, clothing, or shelter. And if you're thinking I'm talking about somewhere else, I'm talking about right here in this community. Thursday or Wednesday, we went out, we fed the Natomas football team. Trey Sales came with me, our singles community director. He pumped up the team. And as we were walking, I was just asking uh, Coach Spencer Hagan how the year was going. And he said, man, it's been challenging this year. I said, tell me about it, man. How can we help? How can we come alongside of you? He said, this year, he said, we have more homeless student athletes than I know what to do with. I said, tell me about that. He said, yeah. He said, some of my student athletes are living in cars. Some of them are couch surfing. Some of them literally have no place to stay. And this meal tonight, Pastor Dean, is some of them only meal they'll eat today. How many know we can respond to that? I might not be able to fix. Listen, I might not be able to fix. Listen, listen the entire homeless situation in Sacramento which is mind-boggling but I could focus on a few students this church could focus on a few students and coach Spencer and walk alongside them and see how we could feed these kids and make sure they're given a meal each and every day I believe we could do that you see Gen Z is open about the healthy and even unhealthy ways they try to cope over four and five Report at least one instance of a traumatic experience and most turn to things like friends, family, and digital media when feeling anxious already. What do you hear? What do you see? Another thing is loneliness. Loneliness was an epidemic in this generation before the pandemic. Connected but alone. Despite being a hyper-connected and globally-minded generation, many young adults say they feel lonely. Loneliness, isolation and anxiety has plagued young adults even before the pandemic. Nearly one in four acknowledged encountering feelings of loneliness and isolation. What do you see? What do you hear? Meaninglessness. And this doesn't mean that they don't know what they want to do. What it means is what, when, when they're pursuing their career and when they're pursuing success, it's not satisfying their soul like they thought it would. And so... I really believe that God is, again, raising up spiritual mothers and fathers in this place because what they desire is meaningful connection and meaningful relationships and meaningful opportunities. A recent study found that more than 25% of young people ages 13 to 25 have one or fewer, one or fewer adult mentors in their life. 25%, 69% have three or fewer meaningful interactions in a regular day. Let those stats sink in. And then I think of the heroes that are in this congregation. I think of the Rondas. I think of Ronda Kawa, who every Wednesday, 60 plus, shows up on a Wednesday night to be a mom, to be a grandma. To maybe a student who doesn't have anybody in their lives to maybe a student, listen, that just needs a hug and to know that they are loved unconditionally and if you think it's not making a difference, we've got 60 crazy junior hires in the common room right now why? because Pastor Isaiah and Andrea have formed a team, but more than a team they have created a family environment where you can go and you can be loved on People like Dave Castillo, who was in our first service, he retired last year from uh, the school district in Stockton, could have packed it up and moved to Nevada like everybody else is, right? Moved wherever, right? Packed it up. But instead, he found a coaching vacancy at San Juan High School and is coaching varsity football. Why? Because young men need a man in their life, listen, who will encourage them and say, yes, you can win in this life. Nearly 70% of those who have at least one mentor report that their life has meaning and purpose. Could you imagine? I believe God, In, in, in the, uh, between services, someone came up to me and said, man, I wanna be a mentor. I wanna be a mentor. How can I be a mentor? Because God is stirring this in everybody. And then lastly, divisiveness, and I'm almost done. I think one of the greatest obstacles repelling this generation from the church is the divisiveness within the church. And when I talk about the church, I'm talking about the big C church. This internal fighting and finger pointing is hurting the body because we don't know how to have healthy conversations, which, by the way, this generation would love to be included in. This is God's heart. Listen, this is why we've got to just go from just listening to sermons on Sunday to jumping into conversations during the week. So how do we respond to a broken world? I'm going to leave you where we're going to pick up next week. Is that okay? Nehemiah 1, 3 to 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah says this, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. You see, what Nehemiah heard broke his heart. What Nehemiah heard stopped in his tracks and he sat down and he wept. What Nehemiah heard ruined him for ordinary living. He was no longer comfortable being comfortable. You see, when we look across our world today, in the midst of all the chaos, all the conflicting views, all the false ideologies, all the polarizing things, what should our initial response be? I believe it should be what Nehemiah's was. He stopped. He sat down. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. Listen, before we do anything, can I challenge us as a congregation to catch God's heart for a generation? Are we willing to allow God to break our hearts and give us a burden which will lead us, listen, to the next steps in reaching the secular world for Jesus. Will you stand with me today? Thank you again for joining us. We pray that message ministered to your heart and lifted your spirit today. Hey, to find out more about joining the RLC online family, you can find us on the Church Center app. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. God bless you.